Good morning, everybody. Welcome to um, this very important topic we are talking about today, which is first responders. And my name is Dina Mitchell, and I'm the founder and executive director of the Realize Foundation. And our mission is to reduce suicide statistics across humanity. In October 2020, we launched a Save a Life Challenge, which is all about having the conversation. Our theory is instead of targeting only the humans struggling with ideation, that we spread awareness and education to all humans. So when the person struggling is ready to have the conversation, there are people around them that know how to listen and be supportive. In turn, we stop the stigma. This will cause people to get help when they need it and ultimately reduce the suicide statistics. You can learn more at our website. It will be in the post at www.realizefoundation.org, or you can just search hashtag Save a Life Challenge. This month of June 2021, we are focusing on the first responder community, and we are aware that this past year has been pretty dire in our arena. So I would like to introduce to you um, James Boomhauer and Bill Gardner, and they are both on board members for our organization. And we will get on with our conversation and I'll let you gentlemen introduce yourselves to everyone. So Bill, would you like to go first? Sure, I'll take it. Thank you very much, Dina. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I was a uh, police officer for the city of Worcester from 1994 to 2004. I retired uh, 17 years ago and um, spent a little time on our uh, region's critical incident stress teams. We're the central mass team operated out of Worcester. And uh, to give you a little idea of what that is, we can talk about it much uh, a little bit later, but um, this critical incident stress teams are pretty much made up of first responders who usually respond to different um, scenes like police, fire, and paramedics. And as um, anyone can imagine, uh, a lot of people, you know, going to scenes like that over and over again, do start to um, suffer from it, um, usually uh, negatively, especially mentally and emotionally. And so these teams get together because they're aware of these uh, patterns and what can happen. And we actually get groups together after they've responded to a major tragic incident. So um, that's how I, I got a lot of my um, experience actually working in the, um, in the realm of suicide and suicide prevention. And how about you, James? Good morning, everyone. I'm James Boomhauer. Uh, I have a, a resume similar to Bill's. Uh, I have been a paramedic throughout New England uh, throughout the past 15 years. Uh, I created a peer support team within a uh, helicopter agency known as Boston MedFlight here in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I also help work with a national peer support team for helicopter EMS and critical care transport professionals known as the Echo Fast team. I'm part of the Rhode Island State peer support team, and I'm also a crisis counselor with the crisis text line. Uh, Bill did a fantastic job explaining what uh, crisis and peer teams do, so I won't belabor that, uh, but I'm also the the founder of Stay Fit for Duty, which is a mental health and suicide awareness advocacy campaign that works very closely with the Realize Foundation on mental health, suicide awareness, and overall health and wellness for first responders and healthcare professionals. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Um, I would like to just have you 
start the conversation, James, with something we talked about before we got on here. So I'll let you start with that and, and you guys take it away. Sure. Thank you. Um, I think we were talking about how easy it's been to be a civil servant or a healthcare provider in the past year and how there's been no stress or drama whatsoever. <laughs> um, and, and looking at the past 16, 18 months of our lives and the stress that we've put on everyone and how that stress uh, just personifies and uh, escalates when you're in the civil service community, when you're in fire, EMS, police, and the unique not only challenges that we've had within our job, but the complications of losing a lot of our coping mechanisms, uh, especially early on in the pandemic, we weren't allowed to see one another, we weren't allowed to talk to one another. Um, typical meeting places that uh, Bill and I might utilize for either formal or informal debriefs or diffusings were taken away from us and how that amalgamation of work stress and inability to diffuse or decompress as you normally would, uh, how that really does um, really pile on and create a tremendous amount of, of mental health stress and cumulative stress for our first responders and healthcare providers. Okay, so Bill, do you have anything to to add to that or respond to that? Um, let me see. What can I add? I guess well, something that's running through my head is that um, you know, at the end of the day, and I think this is a big part of why so many of us struggle, especially males in in, in services like this, is that there's a, a machismo and there's a, a macho ness that that seems to um, always be present in men. You know, men have not always been allowed to show emotion. They haven't been allowed to show fear. And I think that that does us a disservice because then you feel you have to be strong all the time and nothing's going to affect me. And unfortunately, unless you're dead, uh, you really can not be affected by the majority of the things that you get exposed to in, um, in the police and fire and uh, and medical services, it's it's just not possible. So you know, to reach out and actually ask someone for help is not a bad thing, and th and that's why some of the organizations that James and I belong to are so important. And uh, unfortunately, our reactionary, we'd like to make this um, maybe a little more preventative, um, and maybe that's something that comes out of our work together in Realize Foundation is that um, we need to be having conversations and doing things where um, people feel comfortable to talk and deflate and debrief after an incident and, and not hold up that, that mask and that facade that, you know, you have to be tough. You know, when you respond, um, you know, to an, a, a multi-fatality um, and it involves, you know, people in general, but it involves young children. Um, you know, that takes a toll. There, there are so many stories of first responders who come home and the very first thing they do, most of these accidents tend to happen at night. A lot of these accidents happen, tend to happen at night. And a lot of these first responders will come home and go right to their kids' rooms and just look and sit and watch because they just came from a scene where kids their own age had their lives taken. And so, you know, to know that you're going to be affected by that. That simple act right there should tell you that, you know what, I was affected by the scene. And um, it, it's it's not a bad thing. 
to need to reach out and ask for help and maybe, you know, talk with other people who have experienced something similar to it and realize that you're not alone and that um, these feelings aren't normal and that you, we need to take steps to kind of get that stuff, you know, to go away so that you can come back and do your job at 100% uh, the next time. Yeah, Bill is Bill is absolutely right. I, I've been nodding my head the whole time. You know, there are we're in a tough spot because we do have a ton of reactionary measures in place. Uh, Bill and I geographically aren't too far away from one another, and we both have robust peer support and critical incident systems, and and we can utilize all this stuff after the event happens. What we really need to hammer down and focus on is, to echo Bill's point, it's not whether or not you will be affected by what you do every day, it's when you'll be affected by it and how you'll manage it. And to not only continue robust reactionary platforms, but to really change the focus at the academy level, at the introductory training level and say, this is what you will experience. These are some of the ways you can be affected. Here's how we are going to teach you to build that resiliency, recovery, and strength alongside letting you know that if you need help with that, A, it's completely normal, and B, here are the resources that are available to you. Um, Bill could not have said it better when he talks about you know the machismo and bravado within civil service and healthcare. Um, I, I will agree with him that I think that is uh, – on the slightly gender bias scale of, of a much more uh, male problem, but I, I do think it's systemic regardless of gender once you join the profession, right? Paramedics can't ask for help. We're the paramedics. We're the people that other aspects of civil service call when they need help. The police can't call for help because they're the police. They're the helpers. And this entire idea of because I'm the helper, I can't need help. Uh, we see how deleterious that becomes when somebody who needed just a little bit of support five years ago is now in a catastrophic crisis because it's built and built and built and built. So as we can reframe that and, and change the idea that helpers don't need help and how important it is to keep yourself mentally and spiritually strong and well no different than we keep ourselves physically strong and able to do and meet the physical demands of our job every day. Yep. No, I think you hit the nail on the head, James. And I think one thing that you mentioned really rings out to me is that, and I, I don't think this happens a lot and certainly not enough, is that in the academies, in our training facilities, this does not go on. Um, it was four or five years, I think, before I even knew what a critical incident stress team was. And the only reason I knew that it existed was because I had to reach out for help myself um, with one of our stress officers and found out that it actually existed. And then I became a part of it uh, immediately. And I, I think back to my days in the academy, the 20 or so weeks that we were in the academy and all the things that we learned, that was not one of them. So right. They're right. doing us a disservice, I think, when they don't, from the top, from the upper echelon, don't don't pay attention and say that this is a problem. And uh, we don't get that kind of training and education while we're in the academy. Um, so definitely, that's something that um, I think I'm, I'm already thinking, James, how we can get together <laughs> on, you know, getting the Criminal Justice uh, Training Council and other similar organizations to start making this an actual component of um, of academy trainings for police, fire and uh, 
and the medical services. Absolutely. And we, we see glimmers of it in certain parts of the world. Rhode Island, for example, the Rhode Island Fire Academy has the Rhode Island Critical Incident Stream team take a day of their training and right. talk about resilience and recovery and all these things. You know, it doesn't need to be uh, now I'm kind of speaking to like the administrators, right? The people that are trying to put 10 pounds of curriculum in a five pound course. It, it doesn't need to be six weeks. Uh, if anything, I think that would be uh, an overshoot, right? But if we can have an hour, if we can have four hours, if we can have a day, just just to come in and talk about this. And I think people forget how important the simple act of letting that happen is. You know, when when a lieutenant or a captain or someone in leadership role, regardless of of civil service profession, allows a peer supporter to come into a place to help, that is subconsciously telling everyone beneath him, his subordinates, that that's okay. You know, when I had a, a good friend of mine in another state who had a really traumatic EMS call and not only reached out to me, but made a, a pretty good show of reaching out to someone and then went home for the day. And he was initially really frustrated because he went home for the day and, you know, there's still people to take care of. And, and we, we all know that, you know, that this machine can move without us if we need it to. But in the moment, we feel like we're the, the integral link of this really complex procedure. Uh, what I reminded him was is what he did as a 20-year veteran of his department is he told everyone beneath him that it's perfectly okay to be affected, where to go for help, and that it's okay to take a day off. Right. And I, and I don't mean don't show up to work for two weeks, but know that your mental health can be protected in some really simple ways. And we have to acknowledge that protection and how we can get there. And I agree with you. If we start with this at the academy and we start with this when leadership tells us and reminds us that it's OK, it will do a great service in helping to break down the stigma that we're also afraid of. Sure. No, no doubt. No doubt. And to give folks kind of a little extra um, idea of what a, a critical incident stress team, we've mentioned this a few times now um, and how they operate. Just um, And I'll try to do this quickly because it can be a, a pretty um, broad subject. But a critical incident stress team typically meets after a tragic incident. It's one of those not it's not necessarily the day to day stuff, but that one when you get home and you see on the news that this major accident happened, this major fire happened. And there's usually like a severe loss of life. Um, those people, the police, the fire, the paramedics or, or EMTs who, who show up, they're going to be affected by that. And so what will usually happen is someone, um, usually a supervisor in one of the departments or several of the departments will call a local critical incident stress group and have them come and have everyone who responded. It's volunteer, of course, but try to get everybody who responded to come. You sit in a circle. Um, everybody probably does it maybe a little bit differently, but in my area, we sat in a circle, which allows everybody to be part and also everybody can see each other. And you go around the circle three times. So the very first time, what they try to do is have everybody describe everything that they remember from the time they heard the call to the time they arrived at the call, which kind of sets the scene. And you, everybody remembers when they heard that tone when they heard that mic crackle and they got assigned and they go. And then what did you see the second you got there? The second time we go around the circle, you then start to talk about everything that you saw once you got on the scene to the time that you left. 
And usually by doing that, you're starting to relay and everybody kind of gets a picture of everything that was going on that night. And you realize that, oh, yeah, everybody else kind of saw a lot of the same things I did. Now, the third part is the most critical. And that's the third time around. You get to they want you to explain how is it that you feel now that this incident is over about that incident and what that allows people to do. And this is the harder part is that, you know, go around and describe how I'm feeling. A lot of times, like we've already said, people are a little bit reluctant to talk about that. But as soon as one person starts to talk and maybe even eases or toes into it and says, well, you know what? I went home that night and I, I had a six pack. Um, I went home that night and I went into my kid's room. Um, I went home that night and I got into an argument with my spouse. You know, those things are the results of what they just saw. And now that you've explained maybe what you experienced, that person across the circle who maybe was not, I'm not saying a thing. Here's one person, two persons, maybe three persons start to admit similar things that they're feeling. And now they well, you know what? I guess, you know, if that can happen to Tom or, or Sarah, you know, maybe if, you know, if they're admitting it, I can admit it too. And now hopefully everyone now around the circle, it doesn't always happen, but everyone will hopefully express a little bit of what they're feeling. And by doing that now, oh, I, I forgot a, a very important group, actually. Um, I apologize. Not only police, fire, and medical, but you also have therapists on board. That's the, the, probably one of the most important parts of the team. And what the therapists are doing, especially around this third part around, is now watching and listening for any cues that someone is be you know maybe handling this okay or very not okay. And those are the people that they definitely try to grab hold of at that event and try to get them some very specific targeted care at that moment and other folks are you know pretty much you know let to know that everyone they're always available and that this kind of event is available and um, if they ever want to talk they can so just to give you an idea of, of how critical incident stress teams work and um, emergency management services and that kind of thing and um, how important it is that that kind of work does happen after an event but you know, like James and I have both said um, if we can now figure out a way to bring something like that up front to all the agencies that are out there, it would be it would it would do us all a whole lot better um, down the road in dealing with these uh, situations before they get too out of hand. Absolutely. And I, I in hearing Bill do a really good walkthrough of what we call a critical incident stress debriefing. Um, it's really important for everyone listening to this, especially if you are in healthcare or a first responder and you roll your eyes and say, yeah, I've done that before and I didn't like it or it wasn't great or, or any of the, the negativity that, that both Bill and I can get when we broach this topic. Um, it's so important to remember that this branch of this profession, this idea of what we know is critical incident stress management in that one component that Bill talked about of the debriefing is evolving and changing just like everything else in medicine and healthcare. So if you've done this in the past and you didn't like it, you had a negative experience, you thought it wasn't helpful, know that it's evolving. And I don't say that because I want to force you into that seat if you need to be there. Um, when Bill talks about the therapists and the social workers that are there, a vast majority of the time, those individuals are especially trained, just like the peer supporters that you're sitting with, to talk with you in this moment. 
And I, I, I hear it all the time in, in the number of teams that I'm part of and the work that I do. Oh, I've done this 10 years ago and I didn't like it. Well, we don't perform this the same way we did 10 years ago. And it's evolved and it's grown and it's specialized. And there are people like Bill, myself, and the therapists and psychologists that trained us to really work to make this as effective a procedure as possible. But also, please know that that is one very small component of a very large umbrella term known as critical incident stress management. And please don't think of of Bill and myself as synonymous with sitting in that circle. If that's a negative experience for you, if you've done that in the past, know that there are a number of different services, assistance, and help that each individual team with their own nuances can offer. Um, but please don't hesitate to reach out to us before you think you need this this big a uh, very complicated procedure that teams can do very, very well because there are a number of different facets and support that we can offer. And I, I personally feel that we're often underutilized in the all of the other ways that we can offer assistance and uniquely kind of pigeonholed into this whole, they're the team we call for the CISD rather than all of the other ways that like we we keep circling on as we talk about this even in the reactionary phase and the ways that we can be more helpful in the immediacy to help encourage that healing. You know, we call this psychological first aid for a reason. It's no different than medical first aid. The sooner that we can provide care, the better, right? When someone doesn't feel well, the sooner they go to the doctor, the better they become overall, rather than waiting and waiting and waiting, and then having to try to, to uh, resuscitate some emergency that's been, been going on for quite some time. So please know that with any of these teams, and, and Bill and I are obviously endorsing our, our respective teams and the groups that, that connect there, um, but please don't hesitate to reach out to those teams, ask those questions, contact your CISM or your CISD team and say, what else can we do? What else could we do? Are there wellness days? Are there days you could come in when there is no crisis and talk about how this works? Um, don't be afraid to utilize these teams because these teams are truly people who are devoting time to be there for you in crisis. And the more information and the more awareness that we can give you in this moment, or again, in a perfect world, even before this moment occurs, the better. Yeah, no, most definitely. And uh, something that pops into my head, um, and I believe Dina mentioned it earlier, is the stigma. And James just reminded me of it in a way is that, you know, if if you cut yourself on a job, if you, you know, sliced your hand on a piece of broken glass, if you, you know, got tossed down a flight of stairs trying to arrest somebody or, you know, you're trying to carry a stretcher and this weight just gives way and you fall, you know, and you break something, you're immediately treated for that. Or you usually immediately get some treatment for that, whether it be a Band-Aid, a bandage, something, you take care of it. This is as important as that. You would not go to a scene and not take care of it because at the end of the day, you're going to feel something eventually. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, there, there's just too much factual uh, you know, research and studies that have been done to show that, you know, it's not like James said earlier, it's not a matter of if, but when. So when you do start to feel, you know, these chinks in your armor and, and you know, I, I just don't understand why I'm feeling this way and I'm. I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm, you know, heaven forbid, suicidal, you know, that you've got to get that Band-Aid. You've got to get that tourniquet. You've got to get that surgery, whatever, you know, that equivalent to it in the mental health. You need to get that. And um, it's just it's so very important. 
We don't want to see people um, not get the care that they need for those injuries when they would go and immediately take care of another physical injury. I always love metaphors about physical injuries because the other part of what Bill said is if you're in the middle of, of fighting with an assailant or treating a patient and you have a physical injury and Bill comes to me with a sliced open hand that's pouring out blood, I don't judge him for needing a Band-Aid. I don't, I don't mock him for needing to go to the hospital. We just instantaneously provide care. It's infinitely easier because it's tangible. You can see it. His blood is on my hands, right? We can, it's so much easier to physically see with our eyes. But I am excited for the day when we get to the same place of, well, of course, James took the rest of the day off. That call was tremendously challenging. No different than Bill's not going back to work because he has 10 stitches in his hand. So he needs to take time for that to heal. Um, Dina did want us to talk a little bit about suicidology. And one one thing that Bill pointed out um, that I, I really wanted to emphasize in the prevention and awareness component, something that I cannot say enough, as first responders, police, fire, and EMS, we are phenomenal reads at humans. We are great at picking out something from 100 feet away about getting a vibe about someone or something, who's safe, who isn't, who can I trust, who can I trust. We have tremendous intuition that we've grown over years and years of interacting with the public. If you have a concern that someone is a threat to themselves, ask them. There's a terrible, terrible rumor in kind of the suicide awareness world that if I ask someone if they're feeling suicidal, I ask someone if they want to harm themselves, that that in some way, shape or form, like plants the seed. Like, well, I wasn't suicidal, but since you you asked me that question, now I am going to act on that. Uh, and I completely understand people's aversion to asking the question with that in the back of their ear. Uh, what I'm going to tell you here is that is not true. That is absolutely factually incorrect. Asking someone if they feel as though they want to harm themselves or they feel as though they want to kill themselves, does not in any way, shape, or form increase their otherwise likelihood of doing it. So please, as we talk about this topic, as we talk about vulnerability, as we talk about opening up to your colleagues, if you've always been concerned about a friend of yours, a coworker, a partner, or you're, you're getting signs of, hey, I really don't think this person is okay, ask them. I promise you it might not be the most loving and caring response that you get from that person because it's a tremendously personal question to ask, but ask them. You are not putting them in any danger by asking the question and you very well may save someone's life. Yeah, most definitely. And and to attach to that, I would say that, you know, you don't have to have any very special training to ask that question except for maybe these two things. And it would be what I would say to that person. I'm so very sorry that happened to you. What can I do for you? That's it. And then let them tell you what they need, what you might be able to do. And from that conversation, you know, maybe and hopefully there is something that literally you can do. And it could be as simple as, hey, let's just go out and, and have a cup of coffee. Or, hey, you know what? I really could go, you know, could use to go talk to somebody right now. Or, you know, something along those lines. And that's all you need to be able to do. If you can then go and act on those things and help that person get help, that's all you really need to do at a minimum. Yeah, Bill's absolutely right. I, I, Bill and I can attest to the hundreds of hours of training in these topics that you can take and certificates at the wazoo and specialty certifications and licensures and all of this. Um, but none of that is required to make sure that someone is okay.
none of that is required to sit with someone who just told you that they're thinking of harming or killing themselves and staying with them until someone like Bill, myself, or a professional crisis counselor can, can come with you and then help with further steps from there. Acknowledgement and asking the question is tremendously, tremendously valuable and, and often underutilized. I just wanted to jump in and ask a question, you guys, because um, this is such a great conversation. And I'm so thankful for all of your both of your experience and you're willing to share all of this today. But what I was going to ask is in the in the realm of having the conversation and actually starting the conversation, I'm not a first responder. But a lot of times when I'm talking to people that I think might um have some ideation or something. Sometimes if I talk about myself and how I'm feeling, it helps bring out what they're feeling because then they feel more comfortable. And maybe maybe you still need to ask them the question, but it might help like, you know, maybe you just got done with that, you know, that amazing circle thing you d described, Bill, because I think that's so important. But maybe you're maybe you're walking away from that with someone who you're worried about and you're like, man, that was really tough or however you're feeling about it, maybe will help them open up. And if not, you can still ask the question, but then it's maybe like easing into it a little bit um, where they're not feeling so alone. Um, I don't know. That's just my takeaway, but I don't know if that resonates with, with people in your realm. Oh, Dina, I, I think that's a great point. I think, um, it is important to have some sincerity behind the question. And I think that that's a big chunk of what you're talking about is that that connection between you and the individual you're talking to. Um, if I walk up to Bill and I'm like, hey, how are you? I'm James. Um, are you going to kill yourself? Right. And like there's just it's a punch list. Right. And unfortunately, Bill and I laugh because we, we've seen people in our in our specialty do it just like that out of out of fear, out of anxiety, out of all these things. Um, you can imagine a anyone, regardless of profession, saying no and never actually giving a genuine answer. So to be able to formulate that connection with someone, to be able to, to extend a hand. I, I work with a tremendous number of incredibly talented and brilliant healthcare providers, and I am not shy of when I'm not okay and when I need some help, even if it's something as simple as nutrition. Right? I need something to eat and something to drink before I go on another five, six hour long critical care call. Um, it is not to show that I'm the weakest link in the group. It is to show that it's okay. And, and I'll tell you that through that, a number of my colleagues and other individuals in this profession will also say, hey, yeah, I could I could use some help too. That's that's great. Sometimes being that icebreaker can be really helpful. And, and doing so with sincerity and compassion is the absolute right way to do it. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, to, to answer your question, I guess I wouldn't go so far as to say I understand what you're feeling, which can often be a way that some people will react and try to, to, to make that connection. But to say that, you know, I experienced something similar and this is what happened to me. And as a result, I reached out for help and this is what happened then. And so, you know, by doing that, you might be able to lay out that, you know, I was affected in a certain way, not necessarily the way you are, but this is what I did for help. And, you know, it, this might be, you know, one of many options, you know, for you. And, and to echo something that, that James just said, like literally put down that checklist. Oh my God. It's literally, it's the same as that. Hey, brother, you want to go and get a beer? Uh, is, hey, listen, how are you feeling? 
it's the it's it's literally the same for me. It's it's the same as asking somebody to go to the movies, go get a beer. You know what's going on? How are you doing? It's it's you just say it the same way, and you know, and, and uh, you'll find that you'll get um, more often than not a, a genuine response, and you show that you're you're caring and not just going through rote, you know, rotely memorized uh, skit. And I, I do think that all comes back to, as Bill and I both mentioned, um, to to be slightly vulgar uh, in the live chat, right? Um, civil servants have a really good bullshit meter. We are tremendously good at being like, mm, this doesn't smell right. It doesn't feel right. I don't trust it. Bill on the law enforcement side, right? He he can tell you three sentences in if somebody's telling you the truth or not, right? It's, yep. it's a specialty niche of our job. So if you don't come in with that sincerity, everyone's been nervous. I've been doing this for about five years and my first debrief, I had my checklist out, right? Just because I didn't want to miss anything. And I think people are good at recognizing the difference between, oh, they're nervous and oh, they're insincere. And and that's what you're trying to avoid. You know, what, what we don't want this discussion to turn into is a perfunctory uh, analogous to, to what some members of our, our armed forces do, where it is question seven, right? It's, how are you feeling? Have you slept? Are you suicidal? Well, the twelfth time you ask, completely unprompted, you know, with no reason to ask, it, it becomes very forced and it becomes very perfunctory. But uh, this is part of the reason why I had identified it with just that. You know, Bill, Bill and I might say those same things in the same sentence. You know, how was that call? Do you want to grab something to drink after this? So we can talk about it. And as you allow someone the openness to communicate, if you see those warning signs, if you if you get a sense that someone is going to be a threat to themselves or someone else, then ask the question. Um, I, I personally, and this is just my practice, and I, I don't want anyone to take this as gospel, I don't ask every individual that talks to me because I feel that it becomes perfunctory. I, I will say that there is plenty of training that I've undergone that says you will ask every human every time to prevent anyone getting missed in the shuffle. And, and I throw no judgment at anyone who does it either way. Um, I also truly feel that if someone's like, well, I, ha I had a rough day and work's been hard and this and that, you'll learn quickly whether this is you know something that you're just kind of diffusing or whether this is some bigger option. But regardless of which way you do it, to Bill's point, please make sure that it's it's sincere and that it's genuine because that'll that'll pay the dividend at the end. Thank you. Thank you both for that, because if the last year in this foundation has taught me anything, it's that people hear the word suicide and they freeze because mm -hmm. they don't know what to say. So us having this conversation is probably helping people who are not as comfortable talking about this as we are, and maybe they don't have as much experience with it. So thank you for doing that. I mean, I think I had somebody who spoke at another event for me that just said, you know, if somebody is suicidal, don't tell them to just think positive or don't tell them to just be happy. You know, it's, it's things just that simple that the general public doesn't understand. So I wanted to make sure that we talked about that a little. And um, I also wanted to ask each of you, to talk a little bit about what you do for yourself to keep yourself healthy, mentally healthy, um, when you're working these these scenes that can be really traumatic. So, like, what is it that that is most important to you that helps you cope with those things? Hmm. 
let's see, for me, it's easy. It's, um, it's eating, listening to music and riding my Harley, <laughs> you know, and sometimes if, if I can fit all three of those into one single event, I'm, I'm golden. Do it carefully, please. <laughs> As the flight paramedic in the room, that's not how I want to say hello to you. That's right. There you go. We'll, we'll go. I ride to the scene and then hopefully listen to music in a meeting. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, quarter in one hand, throttle in the other with the tunes. Right. Right? I, I don't do that. But, um, yeah, you know, you, you need to grab on to, to whatever makes you feel good in general. You know, for some people, it's working out. For some people, it's flying a kite. For some people, it's reading. Some people it's taking a walk, you know, so for me, um, music, food and, and my Harley, you know, just just that can it's it's better sometimes than taking a pill. And so, you know, those those are the kind of things that, um, you know, when I'm having a, a bad day and, um, you know, need some uh, relief, I definitely get those in. And then if I'm not having a bad day, I just I feel even better. So. Yeah, grab onto whatever um, whatever makes your little tail wag. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in the moment, um, all civil servants have to put it somewhere, right? When I'm in the middle of a call and I'm I'm calculating medicine and, and giving medicine, you have to kind of take those emotions and put them somewhere. And same on the law enforcement and fire side. Um, so I, I don't ever want to discredit that because it's a necessary skill that we have to do. Um, so what I ask of you, any any healthcare providers or first responders that are listening to this, is when you feel that, because we all do, right? We've all choked down that tear or, you know, coughed hard and like done something else. What are you going to do for yourself when you're done, right? The, the, the bare bones fundamentals, as Bill alluded to, right, are hydration, nutrition, and rest. Um, and this is not my time to tell you that you have to eat well. Sometimes calories are better than like what food you're eating. But can you get those three out of the way? Can you down a bottle of water? Can you have a snack? And maybe not sleep for eight hours, but can you close your eyes for five or ten minutes if you need to, right, if that's where you are? Um, if you don't know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, Bill's got like such a great plan and, and it sounds like Boomer's got some stuff that he does, like – I don't know what I do. I want you to like take some time and think about it. What I, I loved it. What makes your tail wag, right? What what helps soothe you and then work with your team, your family, your partners to make that happen. Um, I'm a huge advocate personally for relationship safe word. And my partner who I, I'm blessed is is in flight medicine with me. Uh, so that makes kind of the analogies much easier. But she knows when I've had a bad call because I tell her. Right. And then that is her cue as my partner to kind of help box out the day. Right. Like maybe it's not my day to take out the trash or maybe we won't have a big long talking to if I didn't get the dishes done because she knows that already. Right. She's going to come in with that grace and that understanding um, starting that communication with your team and your partner is invaluable because it saves you the stress of having to create this plan under stress. You know, the, the one thing that we all know really well is the more stressed we are, the less intelligent we become. Um, cognition falls as soon as our stress load gets high. So while things are good, can you think about what Bill does, what James does, what, what we do to keep ourselves whole during a really stressful event? And can you make sure that people in your team know that so that they can utilize that? Because we all know that you have to do the job, right? In, in the moment in time, you have to do the job. You have to fight the fire. You have to treat the patient. You have to in the law enforcement side, right? Take care of the individual and keep yourself safe in the process. So how can you enact that wellness plan once you're safe, right? And can do so. 
Thank you. That was very well said, James. I would like to add something about partners and communication because it's it was it's a key thing in my story and I think it might help somebody is that you know I hid my issues and people can read about that elsewhere but I hid everything for over two decades about how I was feeling and and even a suicide attempt so it once I finally talked to my husband about it he said, I've never seen you be depressed. I've never seen you be anxious. And I'm like, I know because I hid it from you. I hid it from the world and I hid it from myself sometimes. But I can tell you as hard as it was for me to have that conversation and talk about it, it has changed everything. And my husband is really supportive, but he, I have to tell him how to be supportive because he doesn't know. So I think that's important. That's an important point for people that are trying to talk to a spouse that is not involved in what they're doing day to day. And they don't maybe understand as much. So we need to explain to them so they, they know how to support us. And, and one of the general things I say all the time is when you're having a good day, explain to the people around you what a bad day looks like and how they can support you. And so then when you come home and having that bad day, you don't have to explain it. They already know. And so I think that's hopefully that's helpful and um, definitely helped me, although I'm not a first responder. I know I've said that a couple of times, but I don't want anyone to think that I, I have walked in your shoes because I have not. Um, and I would just ask if you guys have any last words for our audience or takeaways just to, based on what you, the two of you just said, um, I think this is very important for general communication, but, you know, um, for folks who are somehow involved with somebody in uh, emergency medical services or um, uh, first responding, is that when you walk into, you know, walk into the house or walk into the apartment or whatever, and you see those dishes haven't been done, or you see the trash hasn't been taken out. If that's something that normally gets done all the time, like clockwork, first of all, pause for a second and say, well, I wonder if there's something going on because I maybe don't want to react negatively about that because now you're maybe sending somebody um, further down the rabbit hole. But uh, also just use that as a, as a time to step back and say, hey, what's going on? Um, we, we all know how we can be when we have our you know, list of things that we know we want to get done or have done when we get home and they're not done, how you can sometimes go off. And um, maybe, you know, when this usually has happened, um, it usually has been done and all of a sudden isn't. And there may be a couple of things in a row that haven't been done. That might be the time to say, you know what, let me see if there's something going on that maybe isn't clearly obvious to me and um, see if that person needs help. And maybe they don't. Maybe they just, you know, something got in the way and, and took, you know, their attention away. And so, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get to those dishes now. But there may also be something going on. So look into that. That was a great point. Um, I've, yeah. had, I've had m many an awesome relationship uh, die on the back of poor communication. And I, I mean, I think we all have, right? I'm, I'm the, the youngest in the group here by a couple of years, so I'm not going to wax philosophic about my relationship advice, but um, I can certainly tell you how wrong I've done it in the past. 
Um, and, and most of that being because I felt as though I had to carry this huge shield of, you know, I am the first responder, I'm the paramedic, I'm the flight medic, I, I am all of these things to other people, so I can't need anything. And the downstream effects that that has caused in every way, shape, or form. Um, I think my only tidbit um, before we sign off is essentially how I sign off a lot of these. Um, please, please remember that it's okay to not be okay. Uh, you're not weak. You're not incompetent. You're not a bad healthcare provider or civil servant. It is merely your body's reaction to an event that happened to you. It does not mean that something is wrong with you. And recognition of that and some grace to that, as Bill alluded, um, you know, allowing yourself the space to be a little off today and ask for some help can be not only life-changing, but life-saving. Thank you, James and Bill. That, that was, this whole conversation has been so um, helpful to me personally to understand more about your operations and how things work. And so I thank you for that. And I think, you know, helpers don't think they need help, right? Because, you know, we're used to helping everybody else and we don't want, um, we don't want the light on us. And sometimes we need it and, and we need to be vocal about it. I also just one last thing, James, I would like you to talk a little more about Stay Fit for Duty and what that means and how people can find it and how, what resources and, you know, whatever you want to say about that. Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Um, Fit for Duty can be found on any social media platform. Um, I'll make sure that, that Deanna puts the, the social media links in the comments here. Um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stay Fit for Duty. Um, you can also email me at stayfitfordutyduty at gmail.com. Uh, myself and my team offers uh, a bunch of resource allocation. Uh, we also offer a bunch of overall uh, wellness and mental wellness tips. Um, and while we certainly don't formalize that we offer debriefing, um, if anyone is in need of any assistance, um, don't ever hesitate to reach out to us. Um, we all are part of our own individual debrief and diffusing teams. But if anyone is ever in need, reach out to us on any of the social media platforms or our email or any of the other ways to get in touch with us. And we'll work with you to get you the help and the resources that you need. Thank you so much. I just want to say that, you know, we all have been in this craziness for the last 14, 15 months. And um, not that the world wasn't crazy before, but I know that the past the past year and a half or so has been really tough. And so I just want to remind everybody, please reach out to those close to you, whether it's your family or your team and have the conversation. You know, it's not an easy conversation to bring up, but it is so important and once you bring it up and have the conversation, it makes everyone else more um, apt to speak up and to tell you what's going on and ask for help. So with that said, you can follow our page. We, we're on all social media, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And we would love to have you follow us and add to the conversation. Give us your comments or questions. Again, you can find us at therealizefoundation.org or you can just Google hashtag Save a Life Challenge. We hope you will subscribe and we also hope you will donate to our cause if you are able. And remember that Save a Life Challenge is all about having the conversation. So thank you, gentlemen, Bill and James, for being here today. It was a really awesome conversation. Thank you. Thank you.